This is a Media Lab podcast. Oh, oh, Kyle, what's going on? All your lights are... Why are you sitting here in the dark? I can't figure it out, man. I'm t- these these runes, these markings are making me go crazy in here. I, I know that they mean something. This machine is trying to tell me something or hint at a, at a future, a possible future that I just don't know what it is. Uh, it's interesting that you're trying to look at these markings in the dark, uh, hmm. but I did pass by a prison cell. Is that a thing for you now? In yeah, this that's apartment? new. That's new. Listen, I don't, I don't uh, shame you about your kinks. You're not going to shame me about mine. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle, Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the, machine. the Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm live streaming Dave. And I'm the Machine. A podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, as Dave just intimated, we are live streaming on YouTube. So, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to the audio format, this has been weeks ago that we did this. You missed it. You get to see how the sausage is made. Nope. Which is, yeah, I mean, Dave is a... One of us is a vegetarian. I'm not going to say who. Oh, wow. Well, so the, 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 the sausage we make is Amazing. disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had broccoli gristle? Ugh. Ugh. Anyways, this is a thing that we're going to be trying out for the next few weeks. So if you do want to go to our YouTube channel and be notified when we are going live to talk about these films, you get to see all the mistakes we make. Uh, <laughs> we get to see all the mistakes. stupid stuff that's... Yeah, yeah well, you're mistakes. a perfect, perfect human meme. Before this, this uh, podcast goes as long as the movie we're going to watch this week... Let's talk about the Green Mile. If a man sincerely repents on what he'd done wrong, then he might get to go back to the time that was happiest for him and live there forever. Would that be what heaven's like? I just about believe that very thing. John Coffey, you have been condemned to die in the electric chair by a jury of your peers, sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. Questions? Do you leave the light on after bedtime? Dave, I think where we need to start off is to ask two things. One, what your relationship is with this movie. But also, I kind of want to know what your relationship is with Stephen King. Well, it's been a while since I was on death row. I mean, Mm. uh, 1930s. That was uh, that was a good probably, decade for me. I would have been a great time for you back yeah. in the 1930s. Yeah, America really did well with Asians in that era. Oh wait, sorry, are you Asian? <laughs> what? I didn't realize. Yeah i I don't think I watched this when it came out, hmm. but I definitely watched it after, and that's all I got for you. Sorry, you do recall watching this movie then? Yes. Before? Yeah, I have yeah. watched this movie before. I did and watch this was it. Positive feelings, negative feelings. I remember thinking that it wasn't bad. It's not a movie that I would um, mm-hmm. reference as a you know defining movie for me. I honestly can't remember much about what's about to happen, 
right? Because yeah, we haven't seen it yet. About to watch, watch it. it. Please preserve the fiction. Which is a bit weird for this live Wait, stream. Did you say where we that actually... you had never watched it before? No, I've seen this. Oh, I've okay, seen the okay, Sorry. It is gonna be weird though on our live stream as we watch this three-hour-long film in real time. Uh, I'm sure the YouTube censors are not gonna like that. Well, the machine's gonna trick the algorithm. Actually, me and the YouTube algorithm used to date. It ended badly. No help from me. What it's going to seem like if you ever watch this is like we don't actually watch the movie when Wait, we whoa, tell whoa, you whoa, we watch. <laughs> no, I'm just saying it's it's the machine. It's the machine. Yeah. It's all this wibbly wobbly uh, time stuff that he does. As far as Stephen King, uh, he and I uh, do not have a relationship. I <laughs> never read any of his. Uh, I don't think I've <laughs> he ever cut read me him. off in traffic one time. <laughs> I've written him off the entire rest of my life. Son of a, uh, my brother actually surprisingly, uh, I was surprised by this. Uh, apparently, got into reading his books in high school, but I think there that's were where more... a lot of men start to fall in love with Stephen King is in high school. I don't know. I I was too big of a nerd. I was in the Tolkien world, so Robert Jordan. So even yeah. nerdier then, yes. Uh, no. Oh, yes, uh, it is. <laughs> uh, but I think my brother was more like Dark Tower stuff. I don't know if he's necessarily mm. reading like the uh, horror horror thing. Right. I, I've never talked to him about it because uh, I'm ashamed for him. And I think as well. And I don't talk to my brother. So. I, uh, oh, we, we're fine. We're fine. Uh, no, okay. and I, uh, I didn't even know this was a Stephen King adaptation until I wrote some of the backstory of this. So next time I do text with him, I'm going to ask him if he's been to the Green Mile. Former guest of our show, Jen Hall, is saying hello, friends, or hi, friends, in the oh, chat wow. here. So we do have one viewer right now going on, which is nice. Jen is staring into our soul. Into our souls. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll answer the first question first about like my relationship with this movie. Of course, as I kind of keep referring to, the, the machine seems to be wanting us to watch, at least here in the last couple of weeks, the uh, Best Picture nominees from 1999. And so I think that that's really where I kind of started to hear about this movie first. Maybe I saw some previews. I don't remember. But I definitely remember it being promoted a lot. Uh, definitely Michael Clark Duncan was a big attraction because this was kind of his breakout role. Tom Hanks was Tom Hanks at that time. Like you knew who Tom Hanks Always was. Always automatic. Yep. And so I did watch this again. I did not uh, see this in a theater. Uh, I don't know if I would have even wanted to see a three hour long film in a theater back then as a teenager, but I did see this on VHS. And if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure this is broken up onto two VHS Probably tapes. two tapes. Probably two tapes. A two Do tape not or... ask me where the break happened. I don't, I don't remember where that happened at. Uh, but that is definitely uh, where I first saw it. And I think we owned it, weirdly oh. enough. I think we owned this on VHS, even though I've only ever seen this movie one time in my you entire life. You and your family life. watch a lot of weird family movies. I this know, is not a movie bizarre. I would watch with my family together. Yeah. Family movies are a weird uh, explanation. I remember liking it quite a bit. And then as I've gotten older, I've definitely... In, in movie... Le movie land is what I was about to say. <laughs> I was yeah, going yeah, so, movie, like, movie Twitter, movie Reddit. Like this movie is like really beloved. Like I don't oh. know if you understand like how beloved this movie is. Like people love the Green Mile, and it's not that I don't like it, but I always was like, yeah, it's it's a good, like it's a fun movie. I, I liked it, <laughs> but oh, it was never one of those films where I was like, oh, I have to watch this again, or it's like this is like the top ten movies that I've seen growing up, or anything like that. It was like it's even it's harder for me because even for movies like that I hate, there's a part of me that was like I could understand someone 
who enjoys this on some sort of base level. But for movies that I think are like, it's just fine. I was like, I don't understand (laughs) when people are like in love with it to such a degree that they want to continue watching it. As we'll discover, like, I'm not joking when people online love this movie wholeheartedly. So I'm excited to kind of watch it again just to see if my opinion has kind of changed. As far as Stephen King goes, I was pretty late into the Stephen King thing. The first Stephen King novel I read that was not an adaptation of his work, because definitely I think that was my first introduction to him was his the movies. Like I'd, I'd seen The Shining. I'd seen this movie. I'd seen um, Shawshank. Shawshank Redemption, uh, like Carrie. I'm trying to think about it, Cujo. Pet Cemetery, like I'd seen all of the it. I'd seen it at a way too young of an age. So I knew Stephen King and I understood like what his like where he was in the pantheon. But actually reading one of his books, it was in my mid 20s when I first read my first Stephen King book. I decided I was going to read all of his books chronologically from when they were written. I didn't last too long doing it that way because his first few books, which is actually Carrie is his first novel that he wrote. Uh, you can tell is a first novel. Like I don't think that it really holds up all that well as a written piece. But I think what the best of Stephen King is, uh, and we'll see if we agree, Stephen King's biggest detractors will often say this. Stephen King is really great at coming up with ideas. His ideas are like really, really sound as far as like, this is a good story. And he also usually does a really phenomenal job of setting those stories up. Where he falters is usually the resolution, like how his stories actually end are usually his weakest bits. Even if his like most beloved work, you can usually poke holes a little bit and like, ooh, like how this wrapped up is not the best possible way or it feels cheap or it just feels like it's been rushed or something like that. I will give this as a pitch to people. He wrote a nonfiction book called On Writing that I think is phenomenal for anyone who wants to actually be a writer of any type of thing, whether it's nonfiction or fiction. Because I think he actually gives some really great advice in that. He he wrote it. I, I don't know if you know much about Stephen King's life, but he almost was killed in a car crash. Uh, and when I say killed in a car crash, I mean, he was walking on the road and someone clipped him from behind uh, and like broke his legs and like flipped him a few times and he almost died. You can't prove anything. I have an alibi. But during that time of his recovery, he actually wrote this book and talked about his recovery from being like taken out by a car. And it's like, here's what I think people who want to be writers should do. Uh, Jen is saying uh, The Green Mile is a wonderful movie. Uh-oh. I listened to the audiobook on several cassette tapes from what oh I remember. Hashtag old. Jen's going to not enjoy this episode of Kyle Uh-oh. and Dave. Versus- no, I'm just joking. It's not going to go that poorly. I'm sure we'll have nice things to say. I, have, I think I'll have nice things to say. But let's not belabor the point. Let's do this. Let me go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking about The Green Mile. Hi, everyone. Just Kyle breaking into the episode one more time to tell you about all of these great people and organizations that keep Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine running. Now, some people call this show their favorite podcast of all time. Of all time. Now, the votes aren't completely in. And in fact, Georgia is taking a little bit longer to tabulate than you would like. But... I'm pretty confident you will find that this is the best podcast. Just, just, you, just believe me. Believe me. However, as always, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Alberta Forest Products Association. So let's hear from them. Alberta's forests matter to all of us. 
That's why Alberta's forest industry works to keep them sustainable now and for future generations. By planning 200 years ahead, helping control the spread of fire and disease, and planting and nurturing two trees for every one harvested, we keep our forests standing strong. To learn more about how our forests take care of us and how we take care of them, visit loveabforests.com. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is also brought to you by Unbelts, the Edmonton-based biz that makes the comfiest stretch belts around. Unbelts also makes cloth masks. You're going to need more of those, whether you're heading back to school or just living in a city that requires masks indoors or on the bus. Unbelts masks are designed by serious perfectionists. The masks follow all the latest WHO guidelines. They're ethically made right down to their components, but most importantly, they're super comfortable, even if you have to wear them all day. Unbelts masks have these elastic straps that go around your head instead of your ears, which is a godsend for me. I actually do wear Unbelts masks when I'm out and about, and I found the ones that hooked around my ears were so painful after a couple of hours that I just wanted to rip them off. But with these ones, because they tie behind your head and neck, they are super comfortable, I can wear them all day. They've also got a nose wire that keeps your glasses from fogging up. They've got waterproof performance shell on the outside and an organic cotton lining on the inside. They come in all sorts of colors and four sizes from preschooler to adult extra large. They've been featured in Parents Magazine, Elle Magazine, and were even named Best in Edmonton. And guess what? Unbelts is a certified B Corporation, which means their business is all about giving back. So what are you waiting for? Head to unbelts.ca to order your masks today. Shipping is always free. And if you're an Alberta teacher, click on the teacher discount on their homepage for 20% off your entire order. Once again, that's unbelts.ca. Use the discount code APN at checkout and order your masks today. Well, Dave, what do you think? In the most non-spoilery way possible. I think we texted this to each other when we fictionally watched this at the same time, but Tom Hanks should have been the first person to win an Oscar for urinating. <laughs> Best urination. Okay. I thought we were gonna, it was going to take a while to get to this point, but I have to tell you, this is my... <laughs> I, I'm going to read you the exact note that I wrote down while watching this movie. Tom Hanks' pee face is amazing. Should have been given his third Oscar. And I stand by that statement. The guy, if you don't know, this is really not that spoilery. Tom Hanks is suffering from a bladder infection, so he can't go to the bathroom very easily. And at a certain point in the movie, he's able to pee uh, more freely. And his face goes from horror to Orgasm. trepidation to, to happiness to like absolute ecstasy. And he does this amazing performance without saying a single word over the course of 30 seconds. And it's at that point, it's like, yeah, like we sleep on Tom Hanks. Yes, he like holds this one record of winning two Oscars like back to back. He's kind of done with doing his like biopic thing that he does. Like that's basically all he does, it seems anymore. But when he's on, like, boy, is he a great actor. And I think that scene specifically just shows that off. Do, do you think people sleep on him? Isn't he pretty much automatic? Isn't there... I think for me, I feel like Tom Hanks is like Meryl Streep and that people like, yeah, like they're good, but they also think that they're a bit overrated. But then you see a great performance by one of them and like, okay, yeah, they're like, they're pretty great when they, when they're doing like something phenomenal. I just, I always think about Tom Hanks starting off, you know, dating a mermaid or like <laughs> on a volcano and then, uh, you know, depicting someone dying of AIDS or uh, yeah. urinating, you know, freely. He's uh, 
He's got range, I, man. He's got I range. I actually say, like, a few years ago, like, whatever you, you thought about the film, there's the uh, Captain Phillips. And it's a bit of a meme now, like, I'm the captain now, right? Tom Hanks was not nominated for Best Actor for that role. I think he was robbed. Like, there was a moment where he has, a, like, a breakdown, a mental breakdown at the very end after he's rescued and he can actually show emotion again. This is so raw and is so good that I was mad that he wasn't nominated. I don't know if he should have won, but I was so mad that he wasn't at least nominated for just that performance alone. It turns out he's got the Emmy and the Tony, so... I don't think he won the Tony. I think he was nominated for a Tony, but I don't oh. think he won. I thought I read that. But he well, has an Emmy. He has we'll an Emmy and an Oscar. It. We'll back check yeah. it. So I'm just waiting for him to do like a sing-along album. Actually, they should have released maybe one for the uh, uh, Fred Rogers mm-hmm. biopic, and then... Yeah. Then you got the Grammy. <laughs> He's good. Yeah. yeah. All he has to do is be the yeah the narrator of a, an audio book, and he'll they'll probably throw a, a Grammy at you at that point. Uh, an audio an audio book. Do you yeah. do you listen to those on tape? I actually enjoy listening to all my recent novels on twenty nine cassette tapes, and I flip them back and forth. I like the A side and then the B side. That's a reference that many people will forget. And then I rewind them with my pencil. Pencil rewinding is a key trait. That's uh, that's a skill set. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I mean that's the that's the P face that we're talking about. That's quite the segue. Uh, but overall, like, what did your what are your feelings on the movie itself? The movie happened. It was three hours long. There are a lot of great. I mean, this is a this is a huge cast. Um, there's so many recognizable people. And there they're are all some good in it. Pho- yeah. yeah, phenomenal actors. There are some phenomenal actors in like a three-minute role on screen this entire movie. I'm like, whoa, why did you get this like amazing person to only be in this thing for three minutes? Yeah, we got to see racist Lieutenant Dan. Anyways, <laughs> um, for me at the end, I uh, got a little distracted with the magical mystery tour of the whole thing. Um, mm. I understand how the sort of principal plot device is this mysticism that's behind it. Um, I have some thoughts about what this might have been you know, sort of drawn from, but I, I felt fine. Uh, but again, like I said at the beginning, I, this is not a movie that I count in a uh, personality forming experience. I, right. I feel a little bit benign. It, it was it was fine. I, I thought it was fine. I didn't fall asleep. And there was definitely some cringing, physical cringing. Cringing because of something bad or because you were invested in the no, film? Yeah, I got invested. And it's quite brutal. Uh, oh, yeah. Where There's a, there it. is a scene that I think is still like gruesome to in like modern day standards where I'm like, Jesus, like I can't believe this is going this far because it was so long ago since I actually watched this movie front to back. Let me tell you, I completely forgot about the framing device that's in this movie, basically like the beginning yes. and very ending. I'm like, yes. I do not have any recollection of this part of the movie whatsoever. And I think you could cut it out completely and not lose anything in this movie. And actually I think make it better. I don't know. I, I hated those front and end pieces personally. I think they're just there to drag the movie down. And I think there is a very specific point in the movie that is a, a catharsis that happens. And for me, it's like, yeah, like that is the end of the movie here. So let's like, you know, run the next 10 minutes, wrap all these like loose plot threads up and get out. And instead, there is 32 more minutes of movie after I, that event actually happens. I'm just imagining you with a stopwatch, like in, you know, just timing the, you know, like, no, the movie's over. Let's see how long this fucking <laughs> thing takes. Um, and it is a manual stopwatch that I'm using. I, I will, uh, I'll agree with you. I, the one sort of thing that I will add is uh, I think they did a great casting job on that old man because when they sure. flipped back in time, I was like, you know, that old dude could be Tom could Hanks. Could be Tom character. Hanks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, aside from that, I didn't I forgot about it as well. 
uh, for American viewers, I guess, about. And I, um, yeah, I also, like, particularly at the end, it was like, like they're just really well, climbing. Maybe it, climbing it is back. really it's particularly just, at the end. It's like, okay, like, I get it. Like, we right. don't need to, like, belabor yeah. this Everybody's point. Everybody's dying. Let's move on. Yeah. It's, I, I actually think, like, when this movie thinks that it's being, like, super profound and stuff like that, it's kind of at its worst. Mm. And I think it's at its best when it's actually having the characters interact with each other and drive the the plot forward because i really do think like when this movie is good it is really good like there are certain sequences and moments in this that i think are phenomenal and then it kind of just gets dragged down that sounds like a description of any date someone has had with you that being said i will also say this is a movie that essentially leaves every chekhov's gun fired do you know about chekhov's gun do you know that phrase what that no. means no chekhov anton chekhov is it anton anyway chekhov was a playwright but he popularized this idea that if you see a gun in the background in act one, someone needs to fire that by act three. So if you set something up or bring a piece of important uh, scenery or something, or someone says something in the beginning, you kind of have to pay that off later on or people kind of become frustrated with your art. Now I won't necessarily say I believe that every single time, but for most people they use that term like, Hey, someone, something was set up or mentioned or seem to be like super important that this character was saying we need to have like a little bow wrapped up on that by the end of the movie and this film basically does that for every single thing mm. that it mentions if they mention a, a room or an object or a place or a person all of those become important they all intertwine and they all have their endings to all of those things so i think that they were very consciously and i i don't know about the book because i didn't read the book so i have no idea what is been adapted taken out changed uh but regardless, I think that they were able to uh, to make all of that work really, really well. So those are some non-spoilery things. Let's get into some background for this movie, shall we? We shall. On the, yeah, on the presumption that I did the work. <laughs> the Great Mile was released on December 10th, 1999. A bunch of movies came out that day, but the two major ones were The Cider House Rules, which was directed by Lass Hallstrom, written by John Irving, starring Tobey Maguire, Michael Caine. How do you say it? Michael Caine. No. There we go. I'm practicing. And Charlie, working on And Charlize Theron. Oh, Charlize Theron. However, also released that day was the seminal film classic, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. Oh, male Gigolo. Directed by Mike Mitchell, written by Harris Goldberg and Rob Schneider, starring Rob Schneider, William Forsythe, and Eddie Griffin. Talking about being robbed of Oscars that... Uh, <laughs> Didn't even make the award list. I don't yeah, how understand. did this not even get like best original screenplay? Come on, Academy. This was the moment the Academy lost all credibility. Here you're going to start to hear about how much the regular public loves this movie. It is currently rated 8.6 on IMDb, which puts it into the top 250 films of all time on their list. 61 on Metacritic. Uh, and over on Rotten Tomatoes, as of 135 critics... It is rated at 78%, and with the public, 813,753 users, it is at 94%. 94? 94. I'm pretty sure that is the highest rated film Ni we have talked about. 94? Uh, 94. 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. N like 94. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Like, that's how much people love this movie. They, like, they adore this thing. At least the people who would log in. Yes, that yes. Announced As, that they asterisk asterisk the people yeah. who are actually using Rotten Tomatoes 94. and blah 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 the people who are wanting to do it. Uh, I mean, the critics liked it too. I think that the their biggest criticism was the length a lot of the time, from what I could see. But 
Uh, 8.6 on IMDb is like phenomenal as like most films don't get out of the sevens or sixes. So to have it be 8.6 is like pretty high on IMDb as well. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it on Google Play or YouTube. And it is available to stream in Canada. Here we go. On the Stars app. Woo! Show me the money. Come on. Stars 699 gives you a wealth of entertainment opportunities. In fact, if you like the year 1999, you might find your favorite film among the stars. I I don't understand why they are not paying us yet, Kyle. I think it is a travesty that they have not given us money to talk about the Stars app. If we could afford lawyers, we should be lawyering <laughs> up at this point. Yeah. If, if if we could have food groceries and also lawyers, man, <laughs> would, would we we be very litigious? Its budget was sixty million dollars for this movie, which isn't I will say this, it looks like it. It's, isn't that the it's, same as Runaway Bride? I think Runaway Bride was even more, to be honest with what you, the, slightly what more. The f- but this what looks amazing. Fuck? Looks like a million bucks, right? Okay. Uh, sixty million bucks, I guess. It opened to eighteen million dollars domestically. It would make a hundred and thirty-six, and internationally, it would make another hundred and fifty million dollars, bringing its grand total to two hundred and eighty-six million dollars. With inflation, that would be like if they had made four hundred and forty-seven million dollars today. This made a lot of money. This was a huge box office draw, and I, I was thinking about this as the machine is making this go through these. Uh, films of 1999 and especially these movies that were nominated for best picture it is kind of interesting to see that the front runners were these blockbuster films mm. um that doesn't re- like occasionally it will happen at the oscars but nowadays it's usually art house stuff that nobody has actually seen so it's interesting that we have like the sixth sense true? the green mile oh. and other stuff that are yeah. like people went and saw these movies on mass yeah i thought the oscars are still sort of beholden to the box office thing I oh, mean, gosh, I guess, no. Yeah. No, no, no. That's why they had to change their rules here a few years ago, because they were basically just kept nominating films that nobody had seen. Oh, in doing the little background, I wonder if some of the money that this, and critical acclaim that this movie had was buyer's remorse for people shunning Shawshank for so long. Yeah, because uh, Shawshank was pretty much shut out of the awards. And it made no money. Nobody went to go yeah, see no that. No money. Yeah. This stars, and talking about the, the star power in this, I had to expand this from the usual four people they try and keep it to. You gotta do the whole cast. You gotta do the whole cast. Tom Hanks as Paul Edgecombe, Michael Clark Duncan as John Coffey, Doug Hutchison as Percy Wetmore, Sam Rockwell as Wild Bill Wharton, David Morse as Brutus Howell, and James Cromwell as Warden Hell Moores. But I mean, you have uh, Bonnie Hunt in this, you have uh, Patricia Clarkson in this, you have, who else am I forgetting? Gary Sinise is in this for, for a little bit. Like, there's a bunch of people that are in this movie. Yeah, that guy was in that other movie. <laughs> you know the you know the guy? Yeah, the guy. Uh, I love that guy. So what, uh, anything you want to say about these uh, people? Because Tom Hanks we have discussed already in our Toy Story 2 episode. Sam Rockwell we've talked about in our Galaxy Quest episode. So I don't know if there's anything else we want to speak about other than the fact that Doug Hutchison is like the best evil person in this movie as Percy. And is also a piece of shit in real life. So, oh, is that true? I'll get yeah. there. Yeah. He, he was, uh, what was he, 50 years old and married an 18-year-old girl that he had groomed? And yeah, it was, Groomed. It's a, nice. Gross. I, disgusting. He is disgusting. I mean, you yo, can't in this act movie, that, right? That's well, just- Well, that's the thing. It's like, 
because I know some of the stuff he does in real life is like, ugh, I hate this guy's stupid face and he does it so well and it makes me mad that he actually acts it pretty good because I hate him. I hate him so much in this movie. <laughs> so I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to hate him you so much like in this movie. Old. It's great. I just hate him. I hate I, him so much. I, uh, I couldn't stand to look at his face and I was waiting for his comeuppance and then... Wait, well, we'll talk I, about uh, this spoiler alert. Yeah. Spoiler Spoiler alert. I mean, alert. I could, on loop, watch Tom Hanks slap him across the face. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah, this, the scenes of the, uh, yeah, between the guards were great. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if we're going to get into the movie, but uh, there are some moments where, where I really enjoyed it. But that, by the end of the movie, I, I think it got a little off track. I mean, Michael Clark Duncan, like I said, was, this was his, like, big breakout role. This I don't know if he ever... after Whole Nine Yards. Oh, that's a good question. I think before, I think, or about the same time. I don't know. There's a quick, quick answer to that. This is what I kind of remember him first being in, but he would go on to do other stuff. I mean, he was the kingpin in the really horrible Daredevil movie. I don't know if he ever got back to this same level. That might be mean to say, but I don't know if he did. Well, he passed away. Yeah, and that's, that is true too. That, that doesn't help your chances in reprising roles when you are... Deceased. Yeah, what, did, what has he done for me lately, really, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, we got deep fakes now. I mean, I, I'm yeah. pretty sure we could put him into something. No, that's, that's inappropriate. Um, I want more deep fakes. Give me an entire movie of them. I will say this. Like, David Morris and Barry Pepper are, like, two examples of, like, this is also going to sound way meaner than I mean it to be. I don't really think about them all that often but i always love it when they drop into a movie I'm like oh it's david morris or it's oh it's barry pepper this is gonna be great because they usually give solid performances and like supporting roles i was watching this movie and i kept thinking i am pretty sure i watched a tv show or something with david morris maybe as a lead that i really mm. liked and i couldn't name you what it is or whether i'd even watched it does it even exist who knows uh, he was a pretty big a huge arc that he portrayed on the TV show House. Oh, that's where he was probably on for like eight or nine episodes. No, where he I was didn't like watch the big House. Villain. Yeah. He was yeah, like a big villain for like eight or nine episodes. He was which a big was man, cool. so I could see him being a big villain. Huh? Mm-hmm. Huh? Gotcha. Right. The uh, and then, do you know anything about James Cromwell? By the way, um, he's in a lot of movies. He was yeah. Farmer Hoggett in, in yeah. Babe, of course. That's where right. a lot of people know. He is like a super far left hippie. Like, have you ever listened to interviews with him? Like, he is so, like, would basically walk around in a burlap sack and barefoot if he could, I'm pretty sure, is kind of the kind of guy that he is. And he's British. He's one of those British people who you think is American, but he actually isn't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about him. I just know that he's got a very thin face. <laughs> he's another guy who can go, sw- uh, like, swap between, like, really evil and, like, very kind, yes. depending on what yeah. you want him to be. Yeah. This was, of course, yes. Written and directed by Frank Darabont, based on the novel by Stephen King. Uh, Here's a quick history of Frank Darabont. He wrote the really good, in my opinion, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. Dream Warriors. Uh, There is some really cool special effects and makeup stuff that goes on in that movie. He also wrote the remake of The Blob in 1988, and then wrote some episodes of Tales from the Crypt and then Young Indiana Jones. But then he started making a name for himself by adapting Stephen King books. That's basically the three movies he's directed have all been Stephen King books. So he wrote and directed The Shawshank Redemption in 1994, this movie in 1999, and then The Mist in 2007, which is another brutal movie to watch, which I happen to like quite a bit. But uh, 
You would. There's a lot of non-fans because that is not a happy movie. It ends pretty dire. He then, his big thing is that he helped to develop the TV show The Walking Dead. He wrote a few of the scripts and was the showrunner for the very first season before being fired from that show. Uh, Word on the street is that it was in part because the network wanted to reduce the budget, making twice as many episodes for 20% less. Which is why I think that the show turned to complete shit in season two. Or maybe it was. I don't know. That's that's my bias I never watched opinion. it. Yeah, sorry. If you're going to, watch the first season. And then I think it's awful. But again, I stopped watching halfway through season two because I was like, I can't with this. As far as getting into directing again, like there's no announced projects going on right now. But he does own the rights to two other Stephen King stories. The Monkey and The Long Walk. Do you know anything about either of those stories? No, they sound offensive. But uh, let me lay just, it on me. Yeah, let me just get, yeah, go off on a quick tangent here. The monkey is is whatever. It, you know those like little uh, dolls that like clap the symbols together and then usually do like a quick somersault, the little monkey thing? That's what it is. It's basically the, the monkey, ha- what is it, like a curse or something like that. Anyways, whenever he clashes the symbols, someone close to the main character dies. That's Good. kind of the, yeah, the gist. Yeah. It's quality, it's like, quality I mean, writing there. Yeah, that's I mean, exactly. I'm, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a good movie to be made of that. I, I don't know. It was. It's not my favorite. It's. It's whatever. <laughs> the Long Walk, however, is one of my favorite stories. I think there's some really cool things you could do with it. Um, especially, you could comment on a lot of stuff that's going on in the world right now. Like very this was long written. Walk? Like how many kilometers? If oh, you had to well, gauge, right? Well, here's here's the spoil. The Long Walk here. The Long Walk is the story about uh, a contest that can only be competed with by teenage boys. Or maybe just teenagers in general, but I'm pretty sure it was just teenage boys specifically. Yeah, not a great start. Not a great start. With that description, I would have already bought my ticket. And, you know, the race, the race starts and you walk. You cannot run. You walk. Uh, you, there is a certain speed you have to be under and over so there's like a, a range kind of like speed right the the bus right you, you can you have to be above a certain speed but below another speed like you i'd have be to good be at this of, i'm particularly good at speed walking yeah but you but once you start walking you cannot stop and if you stop you get shot in the head and you're killed right oh it's and so it's basically the last person walking is who wins so this goes over the span of a few days right of like walking and you're you know shitting yourself and trying to get to the end and ha- hallucinations and stuff happening um, this I just is something think you can see being made into a film. Yes, 100. percent Yeah, Jesus. I think that there's some interesting things you could do as far as commenting on like uh, our desire to see like reality TV played out to its like logical conclusion. I think that this is basically network, but for a modern age in in many ways. I think I think there's ways you have to adapt this because I don't think you could do like a straight adaptation of this because it's all in the character's head for the entire thing. So you're gonna have to add a lot of stuff to this, but. Uh, as a as a treatise on like the the human condition and how far you can push yourself and what humanity means and like because he helps wow. people when you're not supposed to help them and blah 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 all that kind of stuff. Anyways, I think there's some cool stuff. I really like the book though. Yeah, apparently. It, 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 <laughs> but I will say, from what I remember, it ends not necessarily on a cliffhanger, but not super clear on what actually happens to the main character. So I'm sure there would have to be a, a very distinctive like this is how we're ending this film. All right. Okay, let's get into some spoilers here now. Like, lay it on me. What uh, what was good about this movie? What was something that you did not like about this? I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's such a big undertaking. It's hard to sum up in like a sentence or two. I, 
you know, just topically, the acting, the sort of uh, pacing in those dramatic moments, it's great. And it's a movie that's easily invested in. I think um, when it starts twisting into the mysticism and the horror, I was kind of in and on it for a bit. Uh, The appearance of Wild Bill, uh, Sam Rockwell Mm. is the craziest actor to act crazy. He's great. Uh, (laughs) Right. But uh, I don't know. I, I think when movies del or stories delve into this um, almost like Christian, topical Christian ideologies of like true good versus pure evil, and you know, I start getting a little caught up in my head over analyzing whether this actually has any true meaning or if this is sort of this polarizing American cultural tendency to just be like there's something really good about life or you're like the fucking devil and there's no in between yeah i mean i would say that that's a pretty fair criticism of stephen king in general i think he comes down on this kind of like that where it's like you are either good or you are evil and not sometimes a lot of middle ground on that so i find that his villains are usually like the most depraved people on the planet and his like protagonists are like virtuous and like you know always stand up for the right people and stuff like that so i think that's completely fair the 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 other thing though i find that goes through a lot of stephen king's work you see it in this movie you see it in the shiny you see it in a bunch of other ones which is a lot of times there is like this defining moment in your life and then you are judged by the author (laughs) you're judged by the choice you make in that big decision i don't necessarily know if that has any necessary relevance to life in that because i think there's always multiple decisions you have to make each day but that definitely is what it is because the tom hanks character feels like he has needs to have penance or i don't know has to seek forgiveness for this one choice that he made he made the choice to kill john coffee when he could have decided to do something different. I mean, it would have well, ruined his, the rest of his life. Like, I, but, either right, gone, so, but like that, that's what I mean. Like he feels like he was he either could do the right thing or the wrong thing. And he feels like he did the wrong thing. And therefore he must be punished for the rest of his life. Uh, so the thing that came to my mind when I was watching this is, um, I mean, you're an English major. So I'm presuming you've read the Brothers Karamazov. I've, I've looked at the cover. Okay. Well, one of the great uh, <laughs> chapters is the chapter, The yeah. Grand Inquisitor. Uh, I actually have it on the bookshelf that's behind yeah, my actually looking computer at it. right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's a f- fantastic book. And now I'm, again, I-, I like pretending I read. But The Grand Inquisitor, essentially the shell of that chapter is the uh, the conceptual stories of what if Jesus came back during the Inquisition. And it's this mm. uh, discussion between the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus. And ultimately, I've read it a few times and I've interpreted it different ways. So my recent concept of it is that on the base level, the, you know, even if, Jesus came back for the second salvation. The Inquisitor is basically saying, like, you know, it's not going to help. People a aren't ready to be that good, and b, you know, we kind of need control over the way society functions, and just being perfectly good is not what the world needs. And I started getting this sense from this movie where uh, John Coffey's character is so childish, and um, mm-hmm. this sort of idolizing this christian ethic of like yeah good for good's sake and you know this thing where i'm just going to heal and i have no wants of my own until that moment where he does the wrath of god and just decides to you know puke evil uh, into the two evil and then you're supposed to feel like oh yeah they deserved it I mean, you kind of do because they're painted in such demonic ways right but it is childish in its concept because these are not human characters anymore they're just pantomimes of 
of pure and, and good, you know, and yeah. it loses some of its uh, grounding. I think that's what I wrestle with the most because it feels like, I, I mean, there's some issue with the John Coffey character in general that I want to bring up here in a moment, but it feels like he is trying to resist being the judge. Like he comes and kind of doesn't really care about goodness if he wants to revive you or if it's an animal or if it's a young person or if it's you know, Tom Hanks's character, but then he makes the choice to be like, well, I am going to maybe not directly, but basically kill these two characters off. Like he makes that choice very explicitly makes that choice. And so then what do you do with that? Like what, what is this supposed to make us feel like again? Yes. We think that's justified because I felt bad for Percy. He was my favorite character. It's a child rapist and and a person who is like shown to be a petulant child, but do they deserve it? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that's that was a tension for me where... Percy specifically. Maybe the child rapist I can get on board with killing. But. Well, that's the other weird thing about, you know, Sam Rock- Rockwell's uh, characters starts off almost comedically insane yeah. and then yeah. starts to devolve into this like demon. Even this comeuppance for those two characters, even after that disgusting sequence where we have to kind of live through the crime that kind of sets the entire narrative of this thing off and has to be visually represented. That was my cringe moment where I was almost holding my hand up to my TV and just like, I don't, mm. I don't know. It can be implied. It doesn't need to necessarily be yeah, shown yeah. in such a grotesque way. But who makes this idea of what a judge, jury, and executioner? I mean, yeah. I felt like at the beginning, this could have been a social commentary about, um, uh, what do you call it? Death penalties. Uh. Well, I mean, I think that there is a cool like comparison you could make as John Coffey is considered guilty without really evidence. I guess he's there with the the two dead girls, but right. he doesn't confess the crime. He says that he didn't do it, but the judge jury executioner sends him to death row versus and then bringing that full circle about what well, he gets to actually choose at the yeah. end for himself. I don't know. There's something there that I think you could play around with. And then, you know, just going quickly back to your thoughts on tom cruise uh tom cruise well tom hanks character he would have made a very different movie in this a lot more running probably probably they would (laughs) they would need a plane to jump out of but in the green mile would actually have had to have been a mile long (laughs) so he could just like get up between cells just (laughs) does tom hanks so just going back to this original point does tom hanks character have the option to do anything about john coffee and the reality is in that system he doesn't no matter what he believes in he can't actually say, I mean, he, he has that moment in the kitchen table where he's like, he can't do anything. It's, you can't fight the system. He went to go see racist Lieutenant Dan and uh, mm-hmm. that whole uh, discussion comparing uh, black Americans to dogs. Jesus, that was kind of hard to digest too. Yeah. It's not that it's inaccurate in its portrayal of how white supremacists will think, but yeah, it gives you a little bit of a glimpse of the window of the judiciary system in the United States and uh, how it hasn't evolved that much. But um Corporal punishment is the word. So I thought at the beginning that it was going to be this subversion of corporal punishment, and it, and it is in some effect. But by the end, I think it loses it to, to just turn into this white knight, you know, godlike character killing off the and most I think that may be also why I am so strongly opinionated and not liking the framing devices that are in this film, because he's like beating himself up and it's like, I deserve this. And like, I won't get to die until I've fully served my sentence or, or I forget what exact words he used. Like, I don't know. Like, what did you actually do? Right. You saved, a, you saved a woman 
from like a terrible fate. Treated everybody humanely. I see him like at least in the movie is presented as a kind person. Uh, Wouldn't wouldn't stand up. Let like a bully run roughshod over prisoners. Thought that even prisoners on death row uh, deserve some form of humanity to them. He pleasured his wife four times in one night. Exactly. I mean, I mean like, so all these yeah, things. <laughs> he's doing great. I, I don't know so what the problem it's like is. I, I don't know why he feels so compelled that he needs to self-flagellate himself so much. But maybe, uh, yeah, maybe that's explained a lot more in the book. I just think that it doesn't really make sense uh, by the end of it. Because I think the the more interesting thing to wrestle with and I, where the movie could end or maybe even explore it a little bit more fully is where uh, John Coffey, as played by Michael Clark Duncan, says, like, I'm tired of people being ugly to one another. Says the ugly person on the podcast. Which, man, does I feel for me, again, just talking to me, because I'm like the bleeding heart on this show, this hits home really quite uh, succinctly for me here. As this is going to air in audio format, the election just happened four days ago, three days ago in the United States. And no matter who has won that presidency, people are still going to be ugly to one another. And I just don't know what the remedy to that is, or if I should even concern myself with it, but I have to because I'm me and I need to internalize everything. But I think that there is that concept. There's like, why do people need to be ugly to each other? And then Tom Hanks kind of later on says like, well, what do I do when I meet my maker? Do I just tell them that it was my job? Like, that's what he says. Like, how do I contend with this? Even though I don't agree with what I'm doing. We know what this is. This is something along the lines of sort of privileged and puritanical American culture, which is that there's an idealism that there is a perfect state in which everybody can be good to each other, which is a lie. And one in which we can all profit from it, which is also a lie. And I think when one looks at the history of humanity, you can easily surmise that we are capable, all of us, including you know, us as individuals of great evil. Um, and if there is a missed mark in this movie, and again, it's unfair to kind of put this on this movie uh, in a broader philosophical context, so to speak, uh, because it's, it's a movie and it's a story. So, you know, why the fuck do I have an opinion about that? But, you know, if there were a, a thing to pick at, uh, if you were going to Dostoevsky this thing, uh, it's that notion that what if, for example, like I, I like the idea that John Coffey wanted to release. And I like this idea that Tom Hanks is, pun intended, arrested from being able to save him. You know, but what if the suffered fate of these evil people is simply that they have to live, well, die in kill in the Wild Bill's, whatever his name is, uh, you know, Billy Kid's uh, uh, fate. He was going to die anyways, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether they liked him and he was shitting and spitting on people or not. You know, why it had to be such a graphic, violent and weird sort of, yeah, vengeful Old Testament shit, you know, plague. Um, that cheapened it for me. Uh, and maybe you, you have to do that to, even to frame a three hour movie, never mind a, you know, 120 minute running time. Or there's this assumption that the world is simple and that you are either good or bad and that these decisions are binary. I mean, this is the whole, I think, preface of polarization in politics that, you know, you're good if you're red, you're good if you're blue, and it's total bullshit. Like it's, you need to be. If you recognize that you can be somewhere in the middle all the time, I think that's where life actually is. When people get upset about these things, I think it just reflects more of a naivety where (laughs) it sounds Mm -hmm. so judgmental, but where we just want to believe that things can be nice. Um, And they can be, uh, but... um, I guess like going back to one of other Tom Hanks' other roles of Fred Rogers, 
who by all accounts was like a complete saint of a man somehow. <laughs> I like I do sometimes compare myself to like the best of the best sometimes where it's like, oh, you know, sometimes I have petty thoughts and like get mad and uh, angry and stuff like that. And I and I look at those people who seem to be able to live a life of like of grace and niceness and stuff. It's like, could I actually do that? Or would that me just be putting on a role? Does niceness and doing that is that something that's just innate in people or is that something that they put on until it does become part of them? And I don't know if it matters. I don't know. Like I just, where, where I come on that. You know, where we're kind of dancing into is the sense of idolatry, which is that, you know, if you look at Mr. Rogers, should we worship him as a, let's say a G in, in the Christian rhetoric as a Jesus figure. So we see this depiction of him, and he does seem to have no flaws and he helps everybody is that who he actually is as a person? No, it's impossible. It's impossible to think that he didn't have darkness in him. Whatever he did with it and however he existed, who knows? I mean, there's that other adage, you know, right? Like uh, history is written by the victors. So, you know, we look at Gandhi or Mother Teresa or all of these people that we want to pay homage to. They are not nice in all aspects of their life. You know, it is not human. It's not human to not have flaws. Where we get into idolatry is that we pick this one thing and then we want to worship that one part of them and then think that that's the best. So, for example, a key thing that I learned is, you know, I read the Steve Jobs biopic or whatever you want to call it. uh, And you think that this is what everybody should aspire to, this genius, this free thinker, but he's like the biggest prick. Uh, He's awful, right? He's dehumanizing. And essentially, I mean, this is unfair a bit, but he killed himself because he was so egotistical. He refused to even listen to other could, people's, right? Literally, he could by sheer force him. of will kill cancer. Yeah, well, basically. with fruit. Yeah, with fruit. with fruit. But why do we worship him and his company and his products and his vision, right? Uh, those are By the way, iOS 14 just came out. And, no, you got to be bleeping <laughs> all that. Yeah. Or, or Apple, you can also send a, a check to us. for, <laughs> <laughs> And then we'll say nothing but good things about Steve Jobs. Uh-huh. You know, I was thinking, Dave, a couple of weeks ago, you said that Steve Jobs was an asshole. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's right. You're and, right. Uh, I've changed my mind. Uh, it has nothing to do with these brand new uh, laptops we're uh, sending this out with. But, yeah. uh, also, just to be clear, I want you to worship every part of me. You know, I guess that's what, I, what I'm really thinking of here right now is the type of art I'm consuming and watching. Uh, as we're recording this here, just last week uh, at the Emmy Awards, like Schitt's Creek basically swept <laughs> the awards. First time this has ever happened where uh, all four acting categories, directing, writing, and best show, best comedy in this case, got every category it was nominated for. But what I enjoy about that show and, and, and what the acceptance speeches kind of alluded to was the fact that like, hey, isn't it nice to have a show where like kindness and niceness is celebrated instead of it being like, this is a weakness in people. And I agree. I mean, again, it's not like I want every single show to be the exact same thing. And sometimes I want to be in that mood for like a dark (laughs) and gritty tale, but it is interesting how not very often outside of maybe even children's programming that this idea of being nice, giving back, working on yourself isn't celebrated. It is not seen as like you can't make entertainment from, from that choice. I, I've just been thinking about that a lot here for like the last week. Yeah, we've brought it up actually many times as our, as our uh, rabid fans will know mm-hmm. who have been consuming our content. Uh, Jen know. had to uh, log off, by the way. So we are streaming to nobody right now, but uh, well, this will know, live in perpetuity on our YouTube channel. For our, uh, you know, millions of audio subscribers. You know, the cynicism of uh, 
movie making and critical sort of response. And I, I think we both kind of allude to, you know, post 9-11 sort of culture shock. We've lost that sense of wonder. And I think, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just being an old man about this, you know, like in my day, I think- I, in I a, rewound tapes with a pencil. <laughs> uh, which is the only way that one should consume right. their media, right? Physically. That sense of wonder where, for example, like if you watch yeah, Star Wars, the first one. I mean, I, I personally, you know, like Empire. But and by the first one, we mean episode the four. The fourth one, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah. No, the first one, and I, you know, f- 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 yeah. fuck the rest of that whole thing. No, but um, you just get a couple of good guys. They go through trials and tribulations. They win. In that case, what's great about it is they suffer a great loss too. It's not like they're just these perfect people. Uh, they're kind of annoying, and uh, and then you leave the theater, and it's just a movie. It's not a statement about culture. You don't leave having to have a coffee shop French discussion uh, about the I existentialism. Think you, I think you just made about uh, a quarter of the internet just super pissed off. Uh, well, that, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you so, mean it's just a movie? I speak Wookiee. So you're like, actually, yeah, that, that part I've never understood. Like, I'm a nerd, right, Kyle, yeah. as we've learned, but I'm not a nerd. I, I, I like separation <laughs> between that, right? Like, I, I got upset with the Lord of the Rings movies because they weren't accurate enough, but I don't read the scripts uh, in the books, and I don't know how to uh, decipher runes. Uh, I wanted one and a half, I wanted 90 minutes of complete Tom Bombadil, okay? I, I needed would, that. <laughs> right? And I, I thought to myself, there's no way Tom Bombadil could be in this movie, but, you know, <laughs> just a nodding acquaintance just a nodding, like a nudge that he exists in this, you know. Just his head poking out from behind a tree. Hey, guys. Back. <laughs> or just, you know, leading him on, you know, to the first uh, to the first battle. Or you just have Frodo every so often. It's like, oh, man, remember that time we saw Tom Bombadil? Oh, Tom. <laughs> Tom was sweet. Yeah. How's that dude doing, man, as they're smoking yeah. their pipes? Now we need grit. Even in, like you said, even in children's programming, you know, there needs to be an element of not just cynicism, but like so-called reality in it. I think that's a polarizing reality and there's politicized a little bit. There's marketing mm-hmm. involved in that and and it's poisoned the well a bit. We still enjoy stuff like uh, to your point, not just shit's Creek, but we're both loving Ted Lasso and Oh man. Talk about yeah, like that's a even a, a great example too, because that's all about I'm gonna paraphrase, but essentially like whatever the opposite of toxic masculinity is, is right. what Ted is. Yeah. He's not afraid of being like he's a male, he he likes like quote unquote male things, but he doesn't think that being nice is a weakness. And in fact, He's in on the joke a lot of the time when people like call that out. He's like, I'm okay with that. Fine. If that's what you think, I'm still going to be nice to people. And that's, yeah. And you know, the depth, not to go too much on Ted Lasso and not, and leave the green mile, but what's great about that and Schitt's Creek too, the satirical, but wholesome writing is that, you know, nobody in in the Schitt's family is supposed to be likable, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? They're all supposed to be awful. Well, yeah, at least not at the beginning. I think they grow into that. Well, that's, and that's the thing about uh, kind-hearted comedy which is that uh, there is insight to begin with. You design a character. You know, so, for example, the inverse is true of T- Ted Lasso, where you're just like, oh, yeah, this guy's a complete rube, uh, but he suffers a lot, and it turns out he's pretty woke, and he's aware of what he's yeah. doing, and it's intentional. Anyways, we're, we're so far off. We're not even talking well, about I mean, Green Mile. So. No, I mean, well, to, to get back, just a few things. Just to finish that off, uh, because there's something that I noticed that I never noticed before, John Coffey breathes the the flies into Percy's mouth and then Percy goes down and then shoots Wild Bill. Before he shoots Wild Bill, there's two tears that run down his cheek um, from each eye. One tear and then the second tear. 
And I never remember seeing that before. Granted, it was one time like 20 years ago. <laughs> but still, uh, I thought, oh, what an interesting choice. I don't know if that was Darabont's choice, whether that was a performance choice. I, I, I don't know. But it seems like what he was about to do is not of his own volition necessarily. Um, and I think that adds a little bit of texture to that scene. Basically, the, the, that whole thing is my favorite part of the movie. Basically, from them concocting the plan of how to help the the warden's wife, them pulling off that little heist, coming back, and the resolution of like the killing and stuff. Like that's like my favorite part of the movie. And then again, like I said, it drags on for another thirty two minutes afterwards. Yeah, I love the evil character building for Percy, and mm-hmm. uh, because he's both cruel but a coward and that's a great sort of uh bad guy where you can hate him and pity him but mostly hate him the whole way so you get a little bit of insight into what drives angry people and i think like to your point uh, whatever my thoughts are of turning this into yeah like a horror revenge tale uh that moment of i don't know if it's humanity but little break where he's clearly frightened and uh unwilling and then as wild bill's like abusing him and, and bullying him you see that mm-hmm. sort of thing where you you, you lash back it was fascinating the other thing i think that needs to be stated and this is basically going to be like a flashback a, a flashback to our boys don't cry episode i'm about to go so far out of my lane <laughs> that i'm going to need you to reel me back in but one of the criticisms that comes to this movie is this thing called the magical negro uh, trope do you know anything about that at all, no, Dave? Sounds awful. Let's do it. Let's learn well, basically about this, white this is yep. Yeah. So this is essentially what that is. So in the cinema of the United States, this is from Wikipedia. This is like the best uh, example of this. But in the cinema of the United States, the magical Negro is a supporting stock character who comes to the aid of white protagonists in a film. Shawshank. Yep. Keep going. Yeah. Magical Negro characters who often possess special insight or mystical powers have long been a tradition in American fiction. So essentially what it is, is like Morgan it Freeman. Actually, it's basically Morgan it, Freeman. Yeah. But I mean, it's like once it's pointed out to you, like it's amazing how often this does happen where it's like a story that's happening. You have your white main character and then a black character comes in and is literally magical or feels like there's some mysticism to them whose only role in the narrative is to support what the white character is doing. So they have no, uh, no backstory. They don't have any character arc. There's nothing that you can go really deeper with them. And I do think that John Coffey supports all of those things. Uh, it's actually something that was popularized a lot in the film, I think it's called Magical Negro. I've not seen this, but it was Spike Lee, basically, who is never shy to criticize other filmmakers. But he was a big critic of the Green Mile for doing this because he said this is basically the super duper Magical Negro because they literally have magical powers that they're coming in. And I think that the urging here is you can have a character like that, but at least give them some other character trait or something that they're going for or something that they're designed. But John Coffey literally is like, I don't know how I got here. I don't know where I'm going. He's basically the mind of a child and he's just there to help. And then he's killed off. Like that's his whole function in this whole story. Yeah. That was the, that's a really difficult thing as you go into this movie to kind of come to terms with. If you're watching, you know, Michael Duncan or Clark Duncan, Duncan Clark, anyways, you're watching him uh, put together this character. And so he's great in it uh, emotionally. He's great in it, uh, 
in sort of yeah in that sort of empathetic thing where you where you love his character but that at the same time as it, it drags after three hours you wonder is it supposed to be a comment on race and in the end it's not is it supposed to be yeah, a comment it really on yeah. intellectual something and it's not you know at the end of the day just like you brought up he's only function is to be a miracle to and this is why i was thinking of the grand inquisitor like this jesus figure where it's uh, well, actually not even a jesus figure like, like this benign pure good uh completely disconnected two-dimensional character which is sad and i think it goes beyond the concept of magical negro i think it's just anything outside of the patriarchy because women are written this way in almost mm-hmm. every film until very recently um all minority characters uh animals I don't know. It's kind of like that thing that Gary Sinise starts going on about, you know, uh, treating anything that's not a white male as an animal or as a function to get a story, sto- uh, uh, story mm-hmm. told. So I didn't know that this was uh, a named trope, but it is mm-hmm. something uncomfortable by the end of the movie. It's why I have so many questions about even him playing this. I think this is what I got caught up in. He's playing this benign healing energy something. But then he suddenly becomes vengeful because it's easy to wrap up the storyline of two insanely corrupt, disgusting uh, people because you can't actually resolve it very well. Because clearly, when he's getting out of the insane uh, hole, out of the hole, uh, Percy's not going to uh, give up on it. <laughs> Vengeance is the most human of emotions. He's going to try again to be a dick, right? With his uh, "I know people" bullshit, right? The whole thing is kind of uh, a strange thing. And to your what is it, Chekhov's gun thing? You know, having. Yeah. Wild Bill appear in the same cell block. Like you know, tie. something bad's going to happen eventually. But yeah. also to to bookend this idea of the false imprisonment of John Coffey is such it's overly convenient. I mean, I, I understand how it's important to kind of like you know absolve John Coffey from the true nature of whatever crime he was accused of. But it's it comes off a little bit cheap all of a sudden when Tom Hanks mm-hmm. has to relive this moment. You're like, yeah, I mean, that's horrible, of course, but it had to be this guy who appeared at this time. You know. John Coffey is going to kill him with bugs. It's, it, it started getting yeah. far off the rails by the end. For uh, two things just very quickly, as you said them there. One, I always thought the bugs looked cheap and bad. I, I never liked the effect. Even back in 1999 yeah. or 2000 when I saw this the Odd first choice. time, I was like, yeah. it was bad. Because I'm such a Broadway fan, I do have to bring up the fact too. The other character that gets like violently murdered in this because of Percy's choice is, of course, Dell. Isn't it Dell? I'm going to say Dale? that his character's name is Dell. Uh, but anyways, Michael Jeter is the actor who plays them, who also had a career on Broadway, won a Tony Award for a show called Grand Hotel. And uh, look up his performance at the Tony Awards in 1990 to see like how of a uh, how much range this gentleman had, because he is basically <laughs> made of rubber and can dance like kind of crazily. Like a marionette. Uh, and going to like this Louisiana Bayou guy who I don't know. Did they ever say what? Any of the prisoners are in there for. I don't recall nope. them ever. Like, I'm, I'm assuming they killed someone because that's probably what you're going to go to death row for. But they this never actually they're... physically say like what they're actually in jail for. I think that was the part that hooked me in at the beginning is this idea of treating humans humanely, regardless of whatever is going on in their life. And then the feedback loop they get by these apparent killers, rapists, and murderers uh, being humane in their last moments. And that goes off the rails pretty quickly. But, um, sure. you know, there are some real moments in there where, they, yeah, they do some great psychoanalysis about uh, bullying and about toxic masculinity, which is the, the mm-hmm. catchword right now. And uh, and even bro culture, you know, what stays mm-hmm. a little bit of fight club action, right? Like what stays yeah. on the mile, right? Uh, oh, what stays happens, at the mile. Yeah, yeah. what happens yeah. in the mile stays on the mile, you know, that kind of stuff. 
Um, here's some other notes. This quick, we don't really have to discuss any of these, but I just want to mention them as we round out the episode here, which is uh, this is the second time we saw Jerry Springer on a television set <laughs> this uh, this season. Do you remember the first time? No. Austin Powers, where he actually fights uh, oh, right. <laughs> Jerry Springer in the yeah. studio audience. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wrote down is, thank God I don't have to wear a shirt and tie for everything anymore. I just watch people in like the 30s like change a tire or like rip uh, apart that room. I'm like, I would hate to have to be wearing a shirt and tie to do all that stuff. There are so many moments where I was kind of having you face with all the handkerchief blotting. You know, every moment they're just Mm-hmm. blotting their faces <laughs> from sweat and smell and getting spit on. And yeah, that was a different generation. And that's still a very hygienic one compared to the generation 50 years before that. And the sure, generation yeah. which spawned the high heel shoe for men, which is when uh, sewage ran down the streets of London. The, the the Their fascination with the mouse originally as it's running around the the, the prison Basically proves to me that everybody gets bored at work because it, it was such a great example of being like, oh, let's just like play with this mouse for half a day and figure out what's going to go on. Because I've been there in certain jobs. There's like, oh, I have to do something for like the next three and a half hours. So this might as well be it. That's me all day, every day. I also think because I hate mice and I'm terribly frightened of them that uh, Percy has a point of killing the mouse. So well, I, 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 I didn't feel so bad when he stomped on it, to be perfectly frank. This might be, that's your farm, farmness. I, I'll mm-hmm. give you this quick That's farm wisdom. I'll have you know, farm <laughs> wisdom. Uh, well, it might be. Uh, so I, uh, Helen and I had a townhouse in, in, uh, in Scarborough, in, in Tirana, in Toronto. And mm-hmm. uh, we actually had a mouse appear one day. And so the, the two things that happened is I learned that I'm pretty squeamish. Like I thought I would be brave and catch it. Uh, so we bought these, um, they're called like humane traps. And essentially I learned right, uh, yeah. first that mice love peanut butter, not cheese. Oh, sure. 100% they do, Which yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, so we put the peanut butter in the live trap. But what happened was, because uh, I didn't realize how light mice must be. So oh. the trap had closed. I didn't notice. And I came home and Helen was with me. And I was like, I don't know if it's in here. And I opened the trap and it jumped out and I fucking, I screamed. I was like, oh my I'm, God. I'm literally covering my face. That <laughs> freaked me the fuck out. I, uh, I couldn't do it. If you then, want to see me lose my mind, <laughs> that would be have a mouse jump at my face yeah. and I would And it's not, you know, they're, they're more frightened, you know. And then uh, we caught it again. And, I, you know, so I did that. Whoa, what I, a I stupid mouse. You were I, thinking of learned the first time. I don't know how to uh, audio describe, you know, the, uh, pinch finger, you know, f- fearful holding of the trap, but yeah, I drove yeah. it, you know, maybe a kilometer <laughs> down to release I dro- it. I the- drove it to Windsor yeah. and I just threw it out the window. <laughs> I drove it a kilometer down to free it in the, na- in nature, which is basically the next subdivision of townhouses. So, uh, you know, it's their problem now. So, yeah. Sh- so the farm wisdom, should it have died to prevent the next colony of mice? I don't know. But hopefully, you know, yes. a, a city owl or a trash panda had a great meal that day. Although I don't wish ill mm-hmm. on any mouse, but... Uh, oh, I do. Circle of life. Uh, on every single one of them, I wish <laughs> ill. Lastly, I always like creative swearing in movies. I just think it's so lovely. When the warden, after like the horribleness of Percy not using the, the wet sponge and like that whole like gruesome scene, I love the warden coming downstairs and going, what in the blue fuck? <laughs> <laughs> A quick note on that note on patriarchy is the, uh, the horror of a brain tumor causing his wife to use language I had never even know she knew about. And he's just like, well, fuck, man, like people fucking swear, like, you know, just get over uh, it. 
It was weird though, she, right? So what? She has a tumor. No, uh, <laughs> I actually thought it was even more hilarious when you actually see her later on. And I don't think this room was even all that bad. Like no. really, I, I was expecting like exorcist, I guess, level yeah. stuff. And all I got fucker, was like, I think. Yeah. pig fucker i'm like all right whatever yeah, yeah i did a lot of <laughs> who has been called a point. pig fucker by their wife before come I mean, on you did a good makeup uh you know patricia arquette when you first see her or arquette jesus uh patricia clarkson when you see her first in the wheelchair and she actually looks you know emaciated and then in the bed where she's yeah there's a horror element she's like mm-hmm. disfigured even if you're gonna take the filter off and you're gonna suggest she's using language that you didn't even know a person should know you can do better than Pigfucker. We're done here. Well, the machine has told us that we need to wrap this up here then. So thank you for the one person who checked out our live stream here Jenny, tonight. This is something yeah. we'll do this a little bit more often. So if you do want to jump aboard the train of being notified, yes, you can go to our YouTube channel. You can just type in Kyle and Dave versus the machine into YouTube and you will be able to find our channel. Subscribe to it and it will be notifying you when we do go live. You could uh, call it hopping on our Polar Express. No. To listen to our Toy Story? Absolutely not. No. Uh, well, you can also get in contact with us if there's comments, suggestions, irritations that you have. Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can send us correspondence that way. Those uh, uh, contact to... information is also valid for stars and That's for correct. Apple. Yes. Yeah, let stars know that they should be a sponsor on this very show. We need to rate this film. Uh, you can check out our entire list of films. We have a lot of them over there now. And you can do that on our Letterbox page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And KDVSTM is also our two media handles on Twitter and on Instagram. And I will throw out there one more time that if you want to help us for free, because you can also support us over on Patreon. But for free, you can go to whatever podcast app you're using and give us a rating over on there. Dave, what would you rate this film out of five? Quick interjection. Relevant today? I think that there's enough. Enough. I I do think that this is... I wish that there was a two-hour cut of this film (laughs) somehow. Or at least a two-hour and maybe ten-minute cut of this film. But the the high highs, I think, overshadowed the low lows for me, personally. I don't think that this is a particularly relevant movie anymore now i'm gonna get some straight internet hate oh yeah because again i said i told you people love this movie Fuck <laughs> like they y'all. love this movie yeah if you 94 percenters yeah if you can imagine <laughs> me on audio giving you the the finger flipping you the bird i think that's honestly what the super rich should do just go outside and be like fuck the 94 <laughs> <laughs> percent uh well those two assholes did it with their uh machine guns no okay yeah, let's, guns, let's get yeah. out of um uh, rating i think i'll stay in a solid three yeah three mm-hmm. i mean you know it's a good movie but i i think for the points we have outlined in our very very most distracted episode of all time uh <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't resonate with it that well, but I'll give, I'll give it a three. I am, yeah, more positive. Mind. Like I said, like the stuff that I like about this movie, I feel like in the in the future, if and when I jump back to this, I'll probably just fast forward through the stuff that I don't like and just focus on that middle portion, which I think is lovely. I'm giving it a four. It's a solid four for me. Uh, Tom like Hanks, said, if you ever listen to this, I will give your pee face a five. Yeah, again, yeah. should have been, should have won your third Oscar for pee face. 
mean, if you haven't seen it, just just Google it. <laughs> there has to be a GIF of it or yeah. GIF. What am I supposed to say? I don't know. So uh, that means that it averages up to three point five. So that's what this movie is going to get. Dave, we have a tie, a four way tie here. In fact, so uh, I'll go from the top to the bottom. That is the Mummy, Girl Interrupted, Three Kings. Where would you put this movie in relation to those? Mm. Do you think? On rewatchability, I'd put it at the bottom. Hmm. Okay. Um, because we're split here a little bit, I think we should maybe put it somewhat in the middle here. I'm not, I, I don't think I want to put it like right at the very bottom, but let's do this as a compromise. Let's put it in between Three Kings and Girl Interrupted. All right. Because I want to. <laughs> I don't have any other big special reason for Who's it. Who's the so, captain now, right? Who is the captain now? So, entering our list at the number probably 19 position uh, although currently it's the 18th position but probably it's actually number 19 uh, is the green mile so we should probably find out what we are reviewing here next week here dave let me just push this little old button uh yeah we are definitely going through the best picture nominees this that's what this machine is doing don't pretend you know anything about me uh and so next week we're going to be watching michael kane in the cider house rules have you seen the cider house rules no that's just just a flat no i got nothing i have never actually even been interested in watching this film to be perfectly honest and i have been told it is a movie that was yes nominated for best picture but is considered one of the worst movies nominated for best picture i cannot (laughs) wait i don't know I you know, don't know if that's true or not. I don't know, know if we'll that's true or not. what we need to do is we'll need to find someone to suffer through that with us because... There's uh, nobody out there. Literally zero people in the world that are like, you know what I want to do? I want to watch the Cider House rules tonight. You know what would be even crazier is if that hypothetical person chose to watch this movie. I don't Spoiler know what you're alert. About. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Yeah. A Stephen King ending. We just... Uh, do you think... I guess we should turn on the lights here then, I guess. Why are you holding that straight razor? I, I don't need a haircut right now. I, I know, but I was hoping that you could maybe shave my back. Oh, God. Just don't forget to wet the sponge. Vengeance is the most human of emotions.